Dr. Sandra McGuire discusses how to teach students how to learn on today's episode number 132 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Dr. Sandra McGuire, was connected with me through the AQ organization, and she's an expert consultant for them in the area of engaging underprepared students. She is the director emerita of the Center for Academic Success at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and she also formerly held the positions of assistant vice chancellor and professor of chemistry. Prior to that, she spent 11 years at Cornell University, where she received the coveted Clark Distinguished Teaching Award. She's been teaching chemistry, working in the area of learning and teaching support, and mentoring students for over 40 years. Sandra, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. I know that you have had a great career in higher ed, and one of the things, just one of many, that you have really learned to stress is how important it is for us to really be teaching our students how to learn. Sandra, can you tell me when that first started to have you see in your career just how important that is? Yes. Well, actually, I can tell you that teaching students how to learn or effective learning strategies, I really didn't know the importance of that and start to do that with students uh, until I got to LSU, which was about the 30th year of a 43-year career. Mm. And uh, so I didn't always know this. I was a chemistry professor, and I always knew the importance of helping students understand concepts and recognizing that there were concepts beneath concepts and that they needed to know the between the lines information. But the idea that you could actually teach them how to learn was something that came to me relatively late in my career. And I can tell you, in fact, when I first heard the term teach students how to learn, which is uh, ironically, I guess, a a little bit the the title of the book, when I first heard that phrase, I really thought that was the most nonsensical phrase on the planet. I'm thinking, teach students how to learn. How are you going to do that? If they don't know how to learn and you teach them how to learn, they're not going to learn it because they don't know how to learn. (laughs) Cyclical, yes. (laughs) It didn't make any sense to me. But now I understand that that means teach them the learning process, teach them that learning is not an activity but a process. It's not something you do the night before a test. And it was actually when I came to LSU as director of the learning center there that I started to really be responsible for talking to students about increasing their learning. And I started reading a lot of information, and there was a wonderful learning strategist who was there, Sarah Baird, who was fantastic. And uh, she really 
taught me a lot about this. And when I saw some of the things that she was doing with students and I started reading everything I could get my hands on and I started trying out these strategies, but I could tell you that initially I didn't really think they would work. I thought the strategies were too easy. I didn't think students would do them. But uh, as the weeks and months passed and students were coming back telling me that they had been flunking exams and now they were making A's on the exams, I really became a believer in how easy it is to teach students these fundamentally basic learning strategies that typically they haven't learned by the time they get to college. I think that some of them are almost counterintuitive. And even for us as faculty, we try not to think of ourselves as so far apart from our students that they really can be well, I mean, I think I think one that I know of, which is not necessarily teaching our students how to learn, but just the importance of sleep being one example that it seems like, mm-hmm. well, what big of a deal would it be if I lost out on sleep? That's something that it seems like, oh, the longer I stayed up to study, the better off I would be the next day and more prepared I would be for my exam. So that's kind of one of those. Exactly. Yeah. I remember things. thinking the same thing. And, uh, and so I, I addressed this in the book, but the importance of getting enough sleep, of proper nutrition, of getting exercise. There's so many students, uh, especially around final exam time, when they are in cram mode and they have so much to do, and they just give up their gym routine. But we now know that physical activity is really so important to having the brain operate at peak efficiency that these are really important. And as you say, it's pretty counterintuitive because students think, well, the more time I put into this, the more hours I spend on it, the better the outcome will be when that is really just not the case. One of the techniques that I've been really enjoying using a lot in the last couple of years is retrieval practice. And that's one of those things Mm -hmm. where they're pulling it out of their heads instead of me trying to cram information into their heads. I'm trying to get them to pull it out of their heads. And that's one of those things I'm actually encouraging them to spend less time, but do it more often. So I'll tell them, you know, I want you every single day for 10 minutes to do this. Not three hours for one day, but just every day for 10 minutes, pull out this little flashcards. Yes, and the way that uh, I help students uh, develop a strategy for doing this, well, I, I start with asking them a reflection question. The, the question is, would you work harder if you were trying to make an A on a test or if you knew that you had to teach the information to the class to prepare the class for an upcoming exam? So ah. you were responsible for going over all of the important concepts in the course, paying particular attention to the more the more difficult concepts to make sure everyone understood for which task would you work harder. And students always say they would work harder if they had to teach the information. Okay. And uh, I tell them that absolutely that's true for most people. And when I ask them why, they say, well, I have to really know it if I have to teach it. Or they'll say, I need to be able to answer questions. And so that's actually a great way. Pretending that you're teaching information is a great way to practice that retrieval of the information because if you're pretending you're teaching something, if you get to a part that you don't totally understand, you're going to get stuck at that point. And then you know that you don't totally understand that and you can go back and you can reread that information or study it again to make sure that the next time you go over this, you are in a much better position to retrieve that information that you thought you could retrieve easily, but when you pretended that you were teaching the information, you saw that that was not the case. One of the things that I know is really important to your work is what we should be thinking about as faculty when students are not doing well. 
what's a, what's a, what's the paradigm that we should have and, and what are some of the challenges that we have with getting our heads wrapped around that? Yes, well, I think a lot of faculty have the same uh, problem that I had the first 30 years or so of my career when if I had a student who flunked my first two organic chemistry exams, uh, if they came to me and said, well, what should I do? Uh, and they thought that they were on their way to becoming a brain surgeon, I would ask, well, what's your backup plan here? Uh, I didn't think that they would be able to be successful. But now I think that we really need to take heed to the wonderful work that Carol Dweck, a cognitive psychologist out of Stanford, has done on mindset and the idea that you have a certain amount of intelligence that you're born with. She calls that a fixed mindset. The other view is that you can grow your intelligence with your actions. And so you can literally make yourself smarter. So you could have an IQ test score of 70 when you're third grade, but then have 110, 120 when you're 10th grade if you learn those things that are tested on an IQ test. And so I think that it's important for us as faculty to recognize that students who may be failing our courses miserably are not failing because they are not capable, but they are failing because they don't have strategies to successfully master the information. And that was uh, new to me because I really did think that there were certain students who were smart enough to excel in the physics, the philosophies, the economics of the world. And then there were other students who were put on the planet to do something else other than those that, what I consider those very challenging disciplines. And I now no longer believe that at all. I think that all students have the ability to excel, but many of them need to be explicitly taught the learning strategies, which the successful students have learned at some point along the way. It might have been in elementary school. There are now some students who have a study skills course in middle school or in high school where they learn these strategies. But I think it's important for us to recognize that it's very easy to teach students at any level. I've worked with undergraduate students, graduate and professional school students, and uh, these very simple strategies, for example, previewing the material that's going to be covered in class before you go to class reviewing what happened in class as soon as class is over so that you can make sure that you're starting that process of moving the information from short-term memory, where it went after you heard it for the first time in class, into long-term memory, where you're going to be able to retrieve that information and use it later on. And when students are taught these simple strategies, which, by the way, most of us faculty, including myself, don't really have the language to explain in detail to students. But once we acquire that language and discuss it with students, students are able to, to really appreciate it and implement it. And I've seen student scores go from 30, 28 on the first two tests to 80s and 90s on tests after that. One young man in chemistry had a 42 on his first test, and he got hundreds on everything after that. And that was very eye-opening to me, and that's one of the things that I would like most faculty to recognize that we don't have to tell students drop the course, we can help them get the learning strategies that will help them excel even if they've been failing miserably. I'm hearing two themes from you. I'm hearing the importance of us helping our students recognize this, but I'm also hearing we've got to recognize it ourselves. 
as faculty that that we have a tendency to put labels on students. They're capable, they're not capable, that, that this mindset can actually help us free our students from the trap that we will sometimes put them in. What was something that changed your mind about it? What do you remember as a powerful force that, that's got you to start thinking that you might be wrong about the capabilities of some of your students? Yes, well, and uh, it was actually at LSU when I started uh, teaching students uh, these very simple strategies. Bloom's taxonomy, teaching students about Bloom's taxonomy is also a very powerful tool, which I did not do for the first 30 years of my career because I had learned Bloom's taxonomy as a construct for us as faculty to use to target our teaching, to target our assessments, but I never taught it to students. But then when I got to LSU, they were teaching it very successfully to students, and so then I started explaining students uh, Bloom's taxonomy, and they immediately got it. In fact, the most common reaction I would get is, wow, I wish I had known about this in high school. And so it was a way to help them view what they had been doing, just straight memorization, memorizing formulas, memorizing definitions, and seeing how that was not getting the level of learning, especially in the STEM courses, because I worked with a lot of STEM students. I was a chemistry professor, but that wasn't getting them to the analysis, the application, even the evaluation that they needed to be where they were failing at those levels because they never even knew that those levels existed. All they knew to do was to memorize information. And so when I started teaching students that and and students started coming back to me telling me that they were making straight A's on these uh, exams where they'd been flunking the course before, that really got my attention. And it helped me to understand that, ah, there really is something here. Some of the people who are listening may not have heard of Bloom's Taxonomy, although I know a lot of a lot of people have. But but why don't you just oh. give a sentence or two on on what it is, but also what happens when we move up in Bloom's Taxonomy? What how do our teaching yes. transforms, and then how our learning transforms? Wonderful. Yes. Yes. Uh, the cognitive scientist Benjamin Bloom, back in 1957, worked with. Uh, a group of uh, educators, and they tried to analyze the types of activities that go on in learning. And so they came up with uh, Bloom's Taxonomy. The, uh, it's been revised now, and I'll just give you the revised levels. But the, um, the base is remembering, so straight memorization. And then up from that is understanding. And the way I explain it to students is if you're at remembering, you've memorized definitions, formulas, uh, ways of doing problems verbatim. But if you're at understanding, if somebody says, well, how would you explain that in your own words? Or can you explain this to your 80-year-old grandmother or your 8-year-old nephew? You could do that if you're at understanding. And then the next level is applying, where now you can answer questions you've never seen before. You can work problems you've never seen before because you understand the concepts and the information. And then the next level is analyzing, where at this level you could take any concept and break it down into simpler concepts. So if I were to ask you to give a three-minute mini-lecture on buffer solutions, for example, in chemistry, you could tell me about the need to have 
weak acids as opposed to strong acids. You could tell me about the common ion effect, the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, because now you can analyze these concepts and see what's underlying them. Then the next level is evaluating. So you could look at two ideas, two theories, two ways of approaching something and uh, evaluating whether one is more likely to be effective than another. And then at the top is creating, where now you can come up with your own ideas, your own theories, your own ways of approaching things. And now let me say that I am well aware that when Bloom developed this, Bloom and colleagues, he didn't really see it as a hierarchy. And there are a lot of educators who really don't like to see it presented as a hierarchy. And I understand that. But I like to present it to students as as a hierarchy because I want them to understand that having some knowledge for most people is prerequisite to understanding and doing the more complex tasks. And so if students understand Bloom's taxonomy, then most of them, one of the questions I ask after going over Bloom's taxonomy, I ask them to think back to their high school experience and let me know if Uh, What the highest level was, they typically had to operate in high school to make A's and B's in their classes. And the most common responses I get are ones and twos. And there there are the occasional threes and fours, but mostly ones and twos. And then, though, when I ask them, since most of the students that I talk with have been in college for a while. In fact, I really urge us as faculty to have the learning uh, strategies talk with our students after they've gotten the results back from the first exam or quiz because before they get that, most of them don't think that they have any need for this information because they've done well in high school and memorizing has served them very well. So I recommend that we do it after the students get the results back from the first test. So they've already been in college for a while. And so then I ask them, knowing now what you know about Bloom's taxonomy, what's the lowest level you think you need to consistently operate to make the A's in college that you are totally capable of making? And they will tell me fours, fives, or sixes in many cases because those students who have to do independent projects recognize that now they have to create their own processes. And so it allows students then to move to higher levels by using strategies that will help them to master the content, to go through the activity of paraphrasing the information, to look at problems that they haven't seen before. So it really helps them move into those higher-order thinking skills that they would not even know existed without having a discussion about Bloom's taxonomy. I've had a lot of people critique Bloom's taxonomy as well, and one of the things I've heard people say is that if if we're just spending entire classes on remembering and understanding that we're doing a disservice in terms of motivation, because when we get to creating, that's often where people can have that spark of mm-hmm. why this particular discipline might be of interest. And then we might see that we're lacking. Gosh, well, if, if I'm going to be capable of creating and going down this path that is I can now see is so intriguing to me, it's a mystery to unravel to be able to do something like right. this, then I can go backward and go, well, if I was going to do that, then I would need to 
be able to remember this, understand, apply this. And, and so I've heard people argue to sort of flip it on its head a little bit and start with creating. And then we kind of fill in the gaps. So There's just one way of uh, someone resolving their own yeah. critique with it. But I think ultimately, we know these are really complex things we're trying to do to, to change our students' own mindsets, and then also help them with their learning. Talk a little bit then about motivation, because motivation is such a key factor for our students. Okay, yes, but I want to go back to what you said about oh, Bloom's sure. economy because sure, sure. I think it's a very, very important point because I often hear also that the fun is actually in the creating. And I do think that every situation is different. And so it is uh, important for the professor or the instructor to determine if we can start at creating in this particular situation and then have students walk back to understanding what they need to remember. But I find very often that if we start at the higher levels, then students get so frustrated because they can't create, because they don't have the basic knowledge, that it really does kill the motivation. Mm-hmm. And so I find that more often starting with the basic information that they can master and then moving them up the ladder as opposed to starting at the higher levels, it, that I think we will lose fewer students if we do it that way. Again, not always, uh, because there are certain disciplines, for example, art or uh, certain creative disciplines where students can come up with a very good product without understanding the basic concepts behind what they're doing, and they can walk it back. So I think it's important to look at every situation uh, individually. I wonder if it isn't isn't necessarily about me as your student creating, but just to know what's possible. I think about chemistry because that is something, Sandra, I'm afraid to admit is one of my no close to nothing about. If, if I had had a professor like you who could just show me what's possible, I don't have to be able to do it. I don't have to be able mm-hmm. to create, but just to share what is possible. What are chemists thinking about? What are they creating? What are they experimenting to to light that spark for me before memorizing concepts that I don't understand the relevance of them? I guess that's more of, of where I think we can really do a better job for our students. You're absolutely right, because so many of the people who are inspired to do sciences because they know that there's the, the next great drug to treat a disease now that has no treatment. And this is what chemists do. This is what scientists do. And many of them are motivated by the idea that I will be able to create something, and then they're motivated to do what many people think are the more mundane tasks of, of just memorizing the information. Absolutely right. That's something Uh, I'm working on right now with, I teach an introduction to business class quite often, and it's one of the things I've been critical of in my own teaching, is that the examples that I have given in that class in the past, just in the beginning when we talk about entrepreneurship, I will tend to give examples of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates of the world, and, and, and oftentimes names that students would have heard of, but I've been really challenged by many of the guests on the podcast to look at the stories that I share, and then any recommended reading or articles or examples, I need to have more people of color in there. And I know that that's an area of weakness. So now it's been fun to I've actually heard about, uh, I need to order the book, but a, a really good book of women of color who are entrepreneurs. And I thought, 
Yes, here's a, oh. you know just one way to get some more diverse examples so that people who look at creating, now they're not going to obviously be creating their own businesses from the start, but to show them what's possible. And then I want them to see people that look like them and not only the white guys that are, <laughs> that are the famous, yes. you know, well, entrepreneurs. That's so important on so many levels. I was just speaking at a university out in California, and I spoke with um, an African-American young lady who is a chemistry major, and uh, I'm sorry, she's a biochemistry major, and she said that she on her own did a lot of research about Ernest Everett Just, who is a famous African-American biologist, and she said that she knew that she needed to create a role model that she could look up to, to serve, to motivate her to know what is possible. So Mm -hmm. uh, you are absolutely right that whenever we can bring those into courses, it really helps students. And I'm going to say it not only helps the students of color, but it also helps to shape the opinions and attitudes uh, of the other students about what people from all different groups can accomplish because we see so many negative stereotypes out there about so many different groups of people that when you can see, provide those examples of very successful persons from all different backgrounds, then it has a a very big impact on majority students in addition to the underrepresented minority students. Absolutely. I know you have something to share now about how this all relates to motivation, because if we don't have that piece, we are still in trouble. Exactly, yes. Well, in fact, there there are two chapters in the book on motivation. There's one, what students can do to motivate themselves, and then what faculty can do to motivate students. And one of the things I find, and and not just I find, but the research uh, indicates that the one of the most important things in determining how much effort someone is going to put toward a task is the efficacy ideas that you have. If you think that you can be successful, then you will expend energy uh, trying to do it, uh, effort trying to do it. But if you think that there's no way you're going to be successful, then you're not motivated to spend any energy on that. And so I find that teaching students these very specific learning strategies, teaching them about metacognition, which I have found is really, really effective in helping students start to analyze their own thinking. And uh, the definition is more involved than just simply thinking about your own thinking. But when I talk with students, that's the way I present it. And they're intrigued by the word metacognitive, metacognition and metacognitive learning skills or learning strategies in a way that they are not when we talk about study skills. Very often we say we're going to teach students study skills, but I find that their eyes tend to glaze over if we're just talking about study skills. But they're interested in metacognition. And so when we talk with them about how they can really think about their own thinking, they can analyze their thought process, they can determine if they're just memorizing information or if they're trying to think of new ideas, uh, even if they are doing consciously doing Um, retrieval, practicing retrieval of information as opposed to not doing that, uh, those are things that really increase the belief in students that if they do these things, then it might make a difference because they see that it's very different than what they were doing before. And so then when they try these uh, strategies and they work and they do better and then they're more more motivated to continue to do it. And so that's a, a big part of motivation. But I, it's uh, Linda Nelson who 
said uh, that in the academy, it is our job to essentially create the motivation in our classrooms. So basically, she's saying that unlike most of us who say that, well, if I just had motivated students, these students would be doing very well. And what Nelson says is that in the academy, we can create that motivation. I think part of it is what you were saying earlier, showing students examples of possibilities, what things can happen in our disciplines. And that's a a really big part of it. Now, James Rossini wrote a book 150 Ways to Increase Intrinsic Motivation in the Classroom. It's a wonderful book, and he wrote it for the K-12 audience, but I find that the strategies of the 150, the strategies that are there for directed to high school students are very, very applicable for college students also. Mm. And he talks about five different things that are very important for Uh, addressing motivation, and one of them is that students, like anyone, wants to feel that you're successful, you'll be successful at what you are uh, trying to attempt. Uh, One is that people like to have fun with what they're doing. Uh, People like to be part of a team effort, and so there are environments that we can set up in our classes where students are working together in teams. You've probably seen this, where put students in teams and give them a task and they just take off. And uh, so those are some of the ways that I think we can, given the what we know about motivation, increase the motivation in our classes. Before we go to the recommendation segment, I know that you have one final piece of advice that we don't want to leave this whole discussion with, and that is, um, is there a right way or a wrong way to do this? I'm so glad you asked that, yeah. There is absolutely no right or wrong way to do this. Now, I always say, though, that there are some prerequisites. And one, I think the most important one, is that you have to believe. You have to believe that it is possible for a student who is flunking the test, uh, your course, one week to uh, ace the, the subsequent exams or um, evaluation tools, assessment tools, if we teach them those learning strategies. And as you heard earlier, I did not initially believe that, but I think it's so important because when we believe that it's possible, then we can help students believe that it's possible. And when we can instill a sense of hope and belief in students, then they will do things that they would not do otherwise. So we have to believe that it's true. The next thing is we really do have to have the language to explain to students very explicitly what these learning strategies are. And there's an excellent resource there, um, Becoming a Master Student. And we can have a link to that, but there are a number of of, uh, learning strategies. The website for the Learning Center at LSU has lots of assessments and workshops that students can take to get more insight into even things as simple as how do you take a multiple choice test? How do you take an essay test? And I think we have time. I'll just give you one quick tip that so many students have found so helpful. In multiple choice tests, the way most people approach that is they read the question and then they read the possible answers and try to select the correct answer from the possible answer. But a more efficient and effective way to do that is to just read the question And then before you look at any of the possibilities, determine what the answer is, 
And then when you look at the possibilities, you're looking for the answer that you have already determined is the correct one. Mm. And the reason that works so much better is in a multiple choice test, all of the incorrect answers are known as distractors. And so they are there to distract you from the correct answer. But if you know what the correct answer is and then you're looking for that, you're much more likely to be successful on multiple choice tests. And so it's important for faculty to know what these strategies are to be able to teach them to students. And I think the final thing that is a prerequisite is not letting students give up when they have done very poorly. Because many students, I've seen lots of students, so when they flunk that first test, they decide that, oh, I must not be very smart. In fact, I had a a young lady in honors chemistry who had made a low D on the first test in chemistry, the first test in calculus, and she told me that she was talking to her mother, and they had both decided that maybe she was high school smart, but not college smart. Oh, no. And this is what happens to a lot of students, and so I think... We as faculty have to believe that when we teach students these strategies, that all students can excel. Thank you so much. I, that was a, I, I think I intuitively had tried to have students think about that in terms of multiple choice, but I'm going to go look at that strategy a little closer because I think that's one that I can definitely use in my teaching. This is the point in the show where we each get to share some recommendations. And I just wanted to mention that we were connected via the ACU, it's ACUE, which is pronounced AQ. And yes. that is a organization that has a course to help us faculty in our professional development. And specifically, there's an interview that I want to recommend people go listen to of you talking further about strategies to teach students how to learn. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes and just want to thank Jeff and the other people there for introducing us and getting you on the show. And my, oh, my other recommendation is something completely different. <laughs> and that is that we are getting to the somewhat stressful time of the semester for many of us. And my husband, Dave, put together a holiday gifts for leaders post. And I'm going to link to that in the show notes. And there's a couple that I really want to call out. They're toward the bottom of his email or the the link I'll be posting to. And this sounds silly, but there's a wonderful handy head massager, which looks like a torture treatment thing, but it actually just massages your scalp really nice. Cause I don't, when I've been looking at the computer for too long and, and doing too much grading, my, I get, my scalp gets really tense and it's a really, really good one to get some good stress relief that way. And then there's a, there's a book, all of these has such funny titles, but there's a book called yoga for wimps. Poses for the flexibly impaired. <laughs> and it's very prescriptive. You flip through the table of contents and it'll say, you know, do I have lower back pain? Do I have neck pain? Do I have, and they're, they're all very easy stretches that you could do in your office and, or, you know, at home office, anything like that, that just help us target key areas. We want to be more relaxed. We want to re-energize ourselves. It's a really fun, fun way to do that too. So I'm going to be again, linking to Dave's post and specifically suggest that you scroll all the way bottom down to the bottom to the categories for health. There's yoga for wimps, there's the head massager, and there's actually a stretching book too. That's a really good one too. So those are my recommendations. And I know you have some for us as well. 
Yes, well, there are a couple of books I, I mentioned already, Becoming a Master's Student by Dave Ellis. And there's a book that came out in 2013, The New Science of Learning, How to Learn in Harmony with Your Brain, that was written by Terry Doyle and Todd Zakrajic. And that is a book that is it's very easy to read, and uh, students love it, and it helps them really connect the effective learning strategies with what exactly is happening in their brain. And, and I would like to recommend that. And the link, again, to the Learning Center at LSU, which has a lot of information. But I came across a wonderful article that came out just last, well, I guess it was in October, but it's uh, how the stress of racism affects learning. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I, I knew about the idea, but uh, the actual research that shows that the constant stress that many of our students are under because of the microaggressions that we talk about really can significantly impact learning. Uh, this came out October 11th in The New Yorker, and these authors were saying that this is possibly one of the causes of the achievement gap that has not been been really looked at before. And I found the article fascinating, and so I'd like to recommend that people take a look at that. Well, Sandra, I'm so glad that we got connected and you have so much wisdom. I hope this is just your first of many visits to the show because it's been such a pleasure getting to know you through this and getting to learn I've from you. I've had a blast, yes, and I would love to, to come back. And I guess my parting words to faculty out there would be, I spent the first 30 years of my career not knowing anything about it, but the last 13 have been so much fun because of my knowledge of this information and how I'm helping so many more students. Students. And so I really encourage you to jump in to this area because it really is very, very satisfying and gratifying. Thank you for motivating us today. Well, thank you, Bonnie. What a great opportunity it was to have Sandra on today's episode. And what a great opportunity it was to have all of you listening. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you would like to make a comment about today's episode, add in your own insights or other suggestions, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash 132. And you also can subscribe to an email list that I do each week where you get the show notes with all the links of the stuff that Sandra and I talked about coming into your inbox automatically without remembering how to go to that show notes. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And when you subscribe, you get a free e-guide with the Ed Tech Essentials. Those are 19 tools that'll help you integrate teaching in with your pedagogy and also with your productivity. You can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. As a reminder, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.